in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. So I found out this week that LeBron James, Cristiano Ronaldo, and I are all, we're all born within about a month. I'm the same age as those guys. So my desire to be a professional athlete one day may not be over yet. Like there may still be a chance because they're still professional athletes, right? They're my age, so I'm not, I haven't aged out of that possibility. But I really doubt it. I don't think I'm going to be a professional athlete. If I were to say that I have the potential or that I could be a professional athlete, everyone would respond to that in some way. I respond to that with doubt. The wise people among us probably respond by rejecting the idea completely. No sports team would sign me up for their, for their team at this point, and they would also reject the idea that I would be a professional athlete. Now, our responses come from what we know and what we expect. If you know me, you know that I don't train like a professional athlete. I'm too short to play professional basketball, and I've never played competitive soccer in my life. I can't really use my feet for much of anything as it relates to the ball. So, for those who don't know me, you wouldn't expect that me, someone who's preaching at a church in Shanghai, would be pursuing an athletic career. So you would assume that this is uh, very strange as well. That's how you would respond to this. Well, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke over the last few months, Jesus has made some truth claims, like the truth claim that I have the potential to be a professional athlete. He has made actual and real truth claims about himself that demand a response. We know that most everyone in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth rejected his claim of being the Messiah. They rejected it to the point of trying to throw him off a cliff to kill him. We know that the Pharisees have rejected the idea of Jesus being the Christ. And they've been picking on him, they've been pursuing him and trying to find some way to get rid of him. But in our passage today, Luke 7, 18-35, we're going to look at people responding to Jesus with doubt and rejection. Jesus is going to encounter doubt from John the Baptist. This guy should be on Jesus' side. He's someone who knows Jesus well, but he still has some doubt. And we'll see how Jesus responds to that doubt. We're also going to see Jesus speak about, speak toward, speak about the rejection of God's plan of salvation. You see, even before time began, God has been designing, implementing, and he's currently carrying out and overseeing his plan to save his people from sin and death. In the Bible, God, through Jesus, is revealing and fulfilling his plan to save his people. But what happens when God's plan of salvation comes under attack from human doubt or human rejection? Well, we're going to read and see what happens. As I read the passage, you follow along and think about that question. What happens to God's salvation plan when it comes under attack by human doubt or human rejection? Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall we compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. The big idea, or the main point of this passage is this. God's salvation plan is never threatened by human response to Jesus. God's salvation plan is never threatened by human response to Jesus. God's salvation plan is never threatened by human response to Jesus. We're going to look at two responses this morning. As I mentioned in the introduction, doubt and rejection. It seems like from this passage that they are threatening God's plan, the validity, that is it real, is it valid, is it true, what God is planning to do, what Jesus is saying. So let's look at these. First one is, the first human response is doubt. We'll look at verses 18 to 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, 
the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So a little bit of background on John the Baptist. Luke 1, we see the angel came and told John's father that John would be born, and he would be the messenger that the Old Testament had talked about, that he would go before the coming Messiah, the Christ. When John was born, then John's father also prophesied a very similar message. He said the same thing. He will be the one to go before the Lord. In Luke 3, John enters ministry, and he does that. He starts to baptize people, and he calls them to a baptism of repentance. That's turning from sin and to the Lord, and they're to wait on this Christ, the Messiah who's coming. Jesus was baptized by John, and then sometime later, after Jesus was baptized by John, John was put in prison because he called out the governor for a sin that he was involved in. Now, in verses 18 to 20, John is in prison, and so he can't physically go to Jesus, but he sends messengers with the question. When it says that all these things were reported to him, the previous part of chapter 7 was Jesus healing a centurion's servant. This is healing the servant of a Gentile, and he also raised a widow's son back to life. So these are the things that John is hearing about, and he says, okay, I have a question. We need to go to Jesus. So he sends his disciples to Jesus with the question. It's repeated twice in Luke's account. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now why would John ask this question? It seems like he, of all people, would get it. All the prophecies pointed to him being the one preparing the way for the Messiah, for the Christ, for Jesus. But here he's questioning, he's curious, and he's asking, Are you really the one? Is this right? Did I get this wrong? In Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, when Jesus was baptized, it says, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This happened to Jesus when he was baptized by John. John witnessed this. He would have heard God's voice say that he is well pleased with Jesus. And yet he doubted. He wondered and questioned, is Jesus really the one, the Messiah? How could he do that? What's helpful to look more at John's message in Luke 3, to understand maybe what's going on in John's mind. In chapter 3, verse 7 and following, John is giving a speech. He's speaking to the people who had come out to him to be baptized. And he talks to them and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then later on he said, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now later in chapter 3, when... Uh, people ask John if he's the Christ. They're like, are you, are you the Messiah? He denies it, but he talks about the Christ who's going to come. This is what he says about the coming Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's words are intense. They're not smooth speech. He's saying, brood of vipers. 
Wrath to come, the axe is laid to the root. Fire, winnowing forks, more fire, unquenchable fire. This is judgment. This is destruction for those who are not followers of the true God. This is what John is expecting of the Messiah when he comes. So what is John seeing and hearing about Jesus? Look again at verses 21 and 22. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you see, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news to preach to them. This is not destruction, it's not fire and wrath that John was expecting. So John thought one thing, and the things that Jesus is doing is different than what he was thinking was going to happen. It's not looking the way he was anticipating. So this may be why he says, is, is this not, are you not the one? Is, is this not what we should be expecting? Should we look for someone else? And was John wrong in his prophecy? Was he wrong in what he said? He wasn't. The prophecy that he said, the things that he said we could expect from the Christ are still true, and they still hold true, and they will, especially at the end of time, all come true. That will happen. We know that from other places in Scripture, that it's, it's true. But what Jesus is doing before all that comes to completion is he's bringing a message of hope to the people. He's bringing salvation. Before he brings judgment, he's bringing salvation. God's plan of salvation concludes with judgment of the wicked. Those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ are the ones who will be judged and treated in the way that John talked about. But God's plan includes these other things as well. Before that happens, the healing, blind, given sight, deaf, hearing, lepers cleansed, dead, raised up. It's hope to the hopeless. The poor have good news preached to them. So God's wrath comes after Jesus has fulfilled the mission of rescuing God's people. So notice how Jesus responds to John's question. In typical Jesus style, he does not answer it directly. But what he does here is he shows John what he's doing. He essentially says, look, look at the things that are going on. You've heard about it. Now look, watch. The disciples seems like the disciples hang out with him for a while while he works, and they're seeing these things happening. And then Jesus highlights it, all these good things that he's doing. They're in verse 22 again. Now verse 22 echoes what Jesus said and read in Luke 4, 18-19. When Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, he was given Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, and he read from it. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So as Jesus is telling John these things, it's reasonable to believe that John would understand this passage from Isaiah that Jesus had read from before. 
So Jesus is reaffirming what he's here to do. It's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's to bring salvation to God's people. So are you like John at times? Do you doubt? Do you ever wonder if Jesus really is the one? Maybe you wonder if Jesus can be depended on. Can I lean on him in a difficult, difficult situation? Do you ever doubt that Jesus really is close or that he really loves you? I do. Sometimes I wonder if God really loves me. That question comes to my mind. Sometimes it feels like everything I'm doing is a failure and nothing in my life is working. And the thought comes in, if Jesus really loved me, wouldn't things look different? Or if he really loved me, wouldn't I feel different about my circumstances? I think this is very typical. Those, those questions come to our mind. It's very common for all of us to do. We should look at what John did with his doubt. When he wondered, if, is Jesus really the one? What did he do? He went directly to Jesus. He didn't ask his disciples what they thought. He didn't even go to Jesus' disciples to ask if he was the one. He sent people directly to Jesus. We should do the same thing. When you doubt, when you wonder, go to Jesus. He's not afraid to hear that you doubt. He's not impacted. It does not threaten his plan if you're not quite sure if he's the one. Or if on some day you're like, really? Or like me sometimes, do you really love me? He's not afraid to hear that from us. We need to tell him. We shouldn't go to other people or try to avoid the question. We shouldn't believe the lie that that means that we're not a Christian or that that means that God is going to be mad at us. No, we should go to Jesus with our doubt. The second thing that we should do is we should look at how Jesus respond, responded to John's doubt. Verse 22, He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. In response to John's doubt, Jesus says, check out my works, look at what I'm doing. So when we face doubt, we go to Jesus. The second thing we should do is look at what Jesus has done. Look at his works. So when the question comes to mind, does God really love me? Think about what Jesus did. When we think about what Jesus did, we don't just think about what Jesus told John here. Yes, Jesus gave sight to the blind. He gave uh, the ability to walk to those who are lame and all these things. But what we know that Jesus did is that he died on the cross for you and for me. So when you doubt God's love for you, go to Jesus with your doubt. And then think about and look at what Jesus did, not just healing people, but dying on the cross for your sin. Think about his body, bloody from a severe beating, naked and exposed, massive nails hammered into his hands and into his feet, a crown of thorns stabbing his scalp with blood running down. Think about his body and his blood, the body that was broken, 
the blood that was shed. And he did that because he loves you. So when you wonder, does Jesus really love me? Wouldn't my life work if Jesus really loved me? Does he? Think about the cross. Yes, he loves you so much, he did that for you. Like Jesus showed John his love for people by healing and rescuing them. For the Christian, we know that we have been healed and rescued by Jesus. And we should remember and consider and look at what Jesus has done for us. So that we don't doubt long his goodness and his love for us. In Romans 8, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. There is no separation. If you're not a Christian and you're listening here today, this love of God is extended to you as well. God's salvation plan was and is for Jesus to die on the cross in order to pay the debt for your sin. Salvation is available to you who would believe on Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I urge you to accept this free gift of salvation today. As I urge you to accept this free gift, I know that many people respond to the gospel by rejecting the message and the person of Jesus. Is God's salvation plan threatened when people reject the message? That's our second point for this morning. The first one we looked at, doubt. This, we're going to look at the human response of rejection. We'll cover verses 24 to 35. Start at 24 and read again to 28. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury in king's courts. What then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I am a messenger before your face. I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So after the disciples leave, Jesus talks to the people around him, to the crowds. The crowd is typically a mix of people following Jesus, people who are just interested but not necessarily following or disciples. And then many times Pharisees and lawyers who are trying to trap Jesus in something he says so that they can condemn him. Well, to the crowd, Jesus asked this question three times. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? He's a little silly at first. He says a reed shaken by the wind. Did you go to, to see a plant out in the wilderness? No, of course not. There's lots of those around. No one needs to go out into the wilderness to see it. A man dressed in soft clothing. And here Jesus answered this, no. 
People dressed in splendid clothing live in palaces. They live in king's courts. So the last time, he suggests a prophet. And he answers his own question, yes. Yes, definitely a prophet. And more than a prophet. So it's interesting that John's message, John's question of doubt came in. But Jesus responds with complimenting John. He doesn't condemn him or put him down. As the messengers leave, he doesn't say, wow, I can't believe John's doubting me. No, he talks highly of him. He says he's the among anyone born of women. None is greater than John. Previous to that, in verse 27, he quotes Malachi 3.1, where it says that John is the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah. This is interesting because it points to Jesus as being the Messiah. So John is preparing the way for Jesus, and as Jesus quotes this, it points to him being the Messiah. Okay, John's preparing the way. The one who comes after is, oh, that's Jesus. Yes. And then in 28, uh, verse 28, Jesus says that he's, there's none greater than John. And after that, he says, yet. You may want to circle yet. That's really important. A lot of times in the Bible, the word but, or the word yet, is, is very key, is very important. It's important for us to see. So he says, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, is greater than John. John's the best human possible. Yet, or however, but, the lowest of God's people is greater than him. I think about the people who are in, think about the people in your life who's important to you. You have many important people, friends, uh, maybe colleagues, family, definitely. I think about a parent and who's important to parents. Apart from God and their spouse, the important people in a parent's life is their kids. No one would argue with that. That seems obvious. Our children are super important to us. Well, how much more are God's children important to him? So Jesus is saying that John is awesome. He's somebody special. Yet, those who believe in Jesus and follow him have a status that's higher than John as the super prophet. He's, he's the prophet and greater than a prophet. But those who are, believe in Jesus and follow him are, are actually a status higher than him. So what, what do we do with this idea? It's important for us to hear and to think about. Don't miss this. That By comparing John to the least of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying that if you're a Christian, then you are somebody. You have status. You're already greater than this prophet because you're a child of God. 1 Peter 2 says that as Christians, we are a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. So we have status as Christians. So if you feel like you're not very important, or you don't have status, or you're not somebody, remember that you are already somebody as a believer in Jesus. That your status of being somebody, think about the idea of being somebody is, is this, I feel this temptation all the time. 
I want people to like me. I want people to see me and know who I am because I'm important. I want to have an important job. I want to do important projects. I want to be known. I want to be a professional athlete. I want to be popular. I have these desires that uh, I cannot get rid of. And I realize that I want to be somebody. I want to be known as as somebody, as, as somebody important. Like we would know someone who's popular. But actually, I am already. In God's kingdom, I'm not going to be any, any more of, any more special. And I'm not going to be any less either. It's comforting to know that Actually, as God's child, I don't have to strive for everyone else to like me. I don't have to strive for my career to be amazing. I'm already set in that place. Let's continue on. Verse 29 to 30. Luke gives us some insight in this situation. He gives us kind of an aside in this parentheses. Where he says, When all people heard this, and the tax collectors too, They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Notice in verse 29, it says, declared God just. And all the people who heard this, the tax collectors too, declared God just. It means that there was an approval of God's plan here. Their response in agreeing with their their positive response to God's plan of salvation is an approval of His plan. They had received the baptism of John, which is a baptism of repentance. It's confessing sin and turning to God. And we see in verse 30 that the Pharisees had rejected this Baptism. They have rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Their rejection of God's salvation plan began when they rejected the baptism of John. They refused to repent. They did not want to repent. And therefore, the rejection of the Pharisees was a rejection of God's salvation plan. It was a refusal to repent. Now the people, which includes these tax collectors as well, Justify or show that God's plan is not threatened or interfered with by the rejection of the Pharisees because they believed. Their justification shows that just because the Pharisees rejected does not mean that God's plan is threatened by their rejection. The Pharisees are the ones who are condemned for their unbelief, not God's salvation plan, not the truth of Jesus' message. Let's see how Jesus continues. He continues to speak to the crowd in verse 31. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus gives the illustration here, comparing people to children in a marketplace. 
I envision these children are there without parents. They're running crazy. They're wanting to be entertained by something. I've heard it said about kids, especially boys, that if you have one boy, you have one brain. If you have two boys, you have half a brain. And if you have three boys, you have no brain. What does that mean? It means one boy by himself can make wise decisions. Two boys together, half the time they're not going to make wise decisions and do, they're probably going to do things stupid. Three boys together, there's very little chance of them making wise decisions. Why? Because we feed off of each other. <laughs> I think it's still true. <laughs> I still have this tendency, maybe. But with, with all those boys together or kids together, foolishness wins the day. Everyone wants what they want. They want to do what they want. They desire entertainment, and it's never satisfied. Which I think that's what this picture is of what's going on. Jesus relates these children in the marketplace looking for never-ending entertainment to how the people responded to John the Baptist and to him. They didn't want what John the Baptist and Jesus were saying, and they rejected it and scorned it. They put them down. They canceled them. See, John the Baptist came, and he didn't act the way the people wanted. They thought he was too uptight, too conservative, and a little crazy. Jesus also didn't act the way they thought the Messiah should act. He was too liberal. He seemed to be breaking all kinds of laws and customs, doing things that a good Jew should not and would not do. Now in 35, we see another yet. It says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We could also say that all the children of wisdom justify her, meaning God's people here are the children. And wisdom here is God and his plan. So it means God's people are evidence of God's salvation plan. God's people are the evidence of his plan, and that his plan is right and good and true. Those who rejected John and Jesus are like the foolish children. They, run, they want to run parentless through the world, doing whatever they want, those who believe in Jesus are wise, accepting Jesus and following him in faith. So we can apply this to our lives today. I challenge you, the application is to be wise and accept Jesus. If you're not a Christian here, maybe you've come with a friend to check out church. Maybe you're curious, but you have some doubts. Well, first, I'm really glad that you're here, especially on a holiday weekend. And I hope you'll come back. We'd love to get to know you. But this application is for you. If you're not a Christian, be wise. Not the world standard of wise, but wise according to the Bible. Wise according to God. Be wise and accept Jesus. Do not reject him. 1 Corinthians says, For the word 
of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. This means that truth claims about Jesus sound foolish. They sound stupid to those who are on the path to eternal death apart from God forever. But the good news of Jesus is the power of God for the believer. So friends, don't miss out on this. Be wise and accept Jesus. Now for the Christians, brothers and sisters, this point should not pass us by. We don't say, oh, I've accepted Jesus, so this point does not apply to me. No, it applies to us as well. We too must be wise and not reject Jesus and all that comes from belief in Him. Are there things about Jesus, maybe about the Bible, that you don't really like? Or you read them and you're like, ah, that one's tough. That's hard to live out. Maybe you don't like that salvation is so exclusive. You feel like, It'd be nice if, you know, my friends who were believing very different things, not believing in Jesus, could still be saved. Or maybe it'd be nice if there are certain lifestyles that the Bible says is wrong. I wish it didn't say they were wrong. We believe in Jesus for salvation. So we should not reject Jesus as we live out being a Christian. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Christians, we are God's children. Therefore, we should be wise and accept Jesus for all of life. As Romans 1 says, we should live by faith. Remember the application from the first point. When we doubt, go to Jesus and look at what he's done. For us, we can look at the cross. We see how Jesus died there, taking on all of our punishment for sin. Your sin and my sin. As we look at the cross, see how Jesus died for us, we must respond. We cannot We can accept Jesus or reject him, but the truth remains. No human doubt or rejection changes the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world, sent by God to be a perfect sacrifice for sin once for all. So we must respond to Jesus, challenge you to accept him today, and continue to accept him as you live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you for your wonderful and marvelous love of us. Help us to remember how Jesus died, how his body was broken, his blood was spilled, because you love us. Thank you, God, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.